KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. And the Rundown is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. The show is produced by Sabrina Boyd. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. This just in breaking news John Doherty resigned as business manager of Local 98. Wow. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's kill that closeout. So, Pat, I kind of want to leave in the the interruption the, of uh, like this happened as we were recording. That's, you know what? Let's do that. That could maybe even be like the intro to the show. You know what? I am a terrible fortune teller. Don't ever place a bet on my. <laughs> so, have you ever wondered what breaking news sounds like on a podcast? Well, there you have it. This is the rundown. Philadelphia's local news and apparently breaking news podcast for Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. I'm Jay Scott Smith, joined by Brian Seltzer and Sabrina Boyd Circa. We're dealing with the fallout from the trial of City Councilman Bobby Heenan and Labor Leader John Doherty. This is how it started. I expect to come out of here with a with a nice significant win. And this is how it's going. Listen, you know, we're gonna go back and regroup. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to meet with my lawyers. I'm going to meet with the heads of the unions, you know, and then we'll regroup. Union leader John Doherty and Councilman Bobby Heenan were found guilty of federal corruption charges. And that's not all. They were also found guilty on multiple counts of honest services fraud. And Heenan also was found guilty of bribery. That was just a really great moment. And it just shows how much this is still developing. Even after the trial is over, the verdict has been reached. But at any moment, there can be breaking news about what happens next. Who's more plugged in than City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb? Right there. And I'm instant getting the breaking news. I personally, guys, for whatever reason, I don't know. I've tried to do some soul searching. Love following stuff like this. It fascinates me finding out how things work in Philadelphia. You have a character like John Doherty. It's just really compelling stuff to me. And I've I've enjoyed following it and learning more about it through the eyes of our awesome team of reporters like Pat the last couple of weeks. And speaking of Pat, she, as you heard there, will be joining us to talk about this case, about how the prosecution managed to land a guilty verdict and what's next for Johnny Doc and Bobby Heenan on this Tuesday edition of the podcast. But first, let's get to the rundown of today's headlines. And we lead off today's headlines with a story that KW Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward told us about yesterday. A North Philadelphia man was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder for a 2019 campground shooting in Bucks County. However, prosecutors are backing off plans to seek the death penalty in this particular case. Yeah, Jim was talking about this with us yesterday, and he was, he's been following this trial. Here's a bit of his report from when the verdict came down. The jury found Miles Jones guilty on all counts, including two counts of first-degree murder for the October 2019 shootings of Eric Braxton and Arthur Hill at the Homestead Family Campground in West Rock Hill Township. Prosecutors say after a night of drinking, Jones got in an argument with his girlfriend. It turned physical as others tried to calm him down. After someone punched him in the face, he sat in a car for about 15 minutes. Witnesses say he got out of the car, shot Braxton point-blank in the chest as Braxton tried to calm him down, then shot Hill in the back. Jones' lawyer argued it was self-defense, but after the the verdict prosecutor Ed Luca called the self-defense claim a joke. Luca says the decision to back off the death penalty gives the victim's family closure, adding they're not vindictive and feel the conviction is justice. First-degree murder carries a mandatory life sentence. Jones' sentencing is scheduled for Thursday. I'm very curious about the whole dynamic of the death penalty in Pennsylvania because there's this moratorium now that Governor Wolf put in place on executions. So people can be sentenced to death 
but no one has been executed since I think it was 1999. 1999. So in this case, you know, first degree murder carries a mandatory life sentence. So life in prison versus the death penalty, but you can't actually be executed. It's just a different place to be serving your life in prison. And currently there are a little more than 150 death row inmates here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But as you heard there, this gentleman will not be one of them because the family basically said him going to jail for life and being convicted was more than enough. And just an overall terrible story that just started as an argument that turned into a domestic dispute, which is never good. And then it escalated even further than that. What started out is they were just hanging out at a campground. Mm -hmm. But I do think the most important thing is that the victims' families have some kind of closure. If they don't feel like they need to see it all the way through to the death penalty, then this is what they want. They feel that justice was served in this case. And that's all you can ask for in a scenario like this. We now... Switch gears a little bit here. Yesterday was America Recycles Day, which, of course, if you're going to be honest, every day should be Recycles Day. But it's America's Recycles Day was yesterday. And since we love our trash stories, the Streets Department held a celebration sharing some tips on recycling. Jay, I think the best tip that we heard from this story is how to remember what types of plastic are recyclable. And it's just Philadelphia's area code. 215, when you see the little recycling symbol, if it's a 2, a 1, or a 5, those can go in the recycling. The rest, unfortunately, it's terrible that there are so many types of plastic that just can't be recycled and have to go into the dump, but that is the best way to do it. When we look at how much plastic affects our ecosystem, including there is the infamous patch of trash in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that is largely Hmm. just discarded plastic. Plastic finds its way into just about everything. We had a junkyard fire Last week, week you you see what trash can do. (laughs) Trash is often not the best of things. And it is good to at least remember to use the 215 area code. It's I I think of the roots there with the all the way live from the 215. They could put that right into a a nice recycling like PSA and use that because America Recycles Day. Let's help make this city a little bit cleaner and get a little bit further out in front of lowering the carbon footprint a little bit and kind of cleaning up a few things around here because – Philadelphia is a beautiful city. We just got to try to keep it that way. We also got a few other tips about what to think about when recycling from Kyle Lewis, the program director for Recycling for the City of Philadelphia. The contamination rate for recycling is about 25 percent. So that means that one in four of the things that go in a bin shouldn't actually be in there. And so we encourage people to take a minute before you bin it. But when in doubt, keep it out. Make sure you're keeping things out like plastic bags, um, hangers, like cords and tanglers. Make sure we're keeping things out like soft paper. I got to be honest, guys, and I feel horrible saying this. And I've tried to discipline myself with it as much as possible. At least I should say when I was living in Northern Liberties, a few months ago, and we had lived in Philadelphia for a while. I think the city's trash pickup issues and inconsistencies affected my commitment to recycling. Like, I really had to stay on myself to make sure that I would continue recycling because it got to a point where I was just like, I just want something or someone to take this trash away. And I feel terrible saying that and acknowledging it, but in speaking with friends and neighbors who lived on my block, I think there's some truth to that. I, I think this this whole issue, and we saw it with like COP26 and all the coverage of that and global warming, like it's such a massive issue. I think it's kind of human nature where you're like, okay, so if I recycle this extra bottle, is that really going to change something? And then that for me was at least compounded by, is the recycling going to come on time? 
I think there's a lot in there. And I think that anything that can be done to keep people focused on that and the importance of doing that is great, like this program. But I'd be lying, at least for me, if I did not admit to that, that the trash pickup issues in the city really forced me to stay on top of some of that stuff. And when you know that because of those delays or because of rain or whatever reason, a lot of that recycling that you put in the recycling pile is going to end up being dumped anyway. I can understand where the motivation gets hard, but you got to remember it. You know, it's always worth trying. It's always worth putting things in the recycling that you know can be recycled. As we just heard, don't throw in random things just because you think they might be. But if you know they can be, 215 Plastics, recycle them, please. And we close things out with the Philly Fanatic. And yes, you will be seeing the original Philly Fanatic at some point very soon as the long-standing court case that has been going on between the Philadelphia Phillies and the creators of everybody's favorite big, furry, weird, green mascot, the Fanatic, <laughs> have finally been able to reach a settlement and the original, true Philly Fanatic will be back with the team now that they've settled this entire intellectual property issue. Praise be. <laughs> I know it seems that these were some insignificant design changes to someone outside of our parochial Philadelphia world, but they were tragic design modifications for people who have lived in this area forever and have come to love the Philly Fanatic a few years ago. It's a wild case. It came from the designers of the costume, not people who at one point in time wore it or helped create the the concept of the Fanatic, but I'm glad to see it reach a resolution and a good resolution. You know who's going to be happy, I think? John Oliver. I think John Oliver's <laughs> going to be real happy. He, like, adopted the Philly Fanatic. The Philly Fanatic, even though I didn't grow up in Philadelphia, I knew the Philly Fanatic from all the This Week in Baseball videos back in the 80s where he and Tommy Lasorda would just be going back and forth on the field or he's pulling up on the ATV or on the golf cart on the <laughs> on the field. It's just like... <laughs> I met the Fanatic once a few years ago, and it was a really cool experience. It's like, my God, I've seen you on TV since I was a kid, and I finally get to meet the Fanatic. And at least now, because there was also the minor threat that the Phillies could lose access to the Fanatic, and he would have become a free agent. And one of the scariest thoughts would be the idea that the Fanatic could just pop up with any team, and the thought of the Philly Fanatic wearing a New York Mets jersey made a whole lot of people really angry in this city. Just the thought that he could go to any team. Can you imagine the, the Philly Fanatic and a Yankee jersey with all the pinstripes? Oh. And the, see, there we go. This, for Sabrina may not know a lot about sports. But I don't even is, follow sports. But all you have to do is say New York Yankees to someone who grew up in Massachusetts. It's, yeah, to be fair, it, I have my own reasons for disliking the Yankees. <laughs> the, the physical, that visceral reaction says all we need to know about that. So I get it. it the Fanatic, he's such an entrenched part of the Philadelphia culture. There are dudes walking around with Fanatic tattoos. The Fanatic shows up on stickers, on everything else. It's, it's like, I don't know what I love more, the Fanatic, or how much Philadelphians love the Fanatic. The Fanatic and, and now Gritty are the two, that could be your tip. They ran for president and vice president. They would win, they would probably win <laughs> the Commonwealth win the of Philadelphia. They would vote. win the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's like, there you go. This story, along with so many others, of course, you can find on our website, kywnewsradio.com. Coming up after this, we do a deep dive into the end of the trial of City Councilman Bobby Heenan and Labor Leader John Doherty. You're listening to The Rundown.
Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jay Scott Smith here with Sabrina Boitzerka and Brian Seltzer. And it's been nearly three years since local union leader John Doherty and one of his allies on city council, Councilman Bobby Heenan, were indicted on federal corruption, fraud, and bribery charges. Well, on Monday, that case reached its climax as Doherty was found guilty on seven of nine counts, while Heenan was guilty on 10 out of 18. So what happens here? And what happens next? For more on that, we welcome in KYW News Radio City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb, who has covered not just this trial, but this entire saga, really, from the very beginning. Pat, it's good to have you on with us today. Thanks, Jay. Always great to be here. John Doherty and Bobby Heenan got a whole lot of guilty counts against them. Uh, The combined number between the two of them of 17. What should we know about these verdicts? Which ones are the most serious? How much time could these two guys be looking at? Or do we not even know what to expect here? Well, the most serious charge is conspiracy. And both Doherty and Heenan were found guilty of conspiracy. And that carries the longest potential sentence, which is a maximum of 20 years. But I think it's unlikely that Judge Smell will find that length of a sentence necessary. But that will be the kind of the main determinant of what the sentence is. Now, you've covered every step of this trial in the last six weeks. To be honest, it seemed like that verdict yesterday caught a lot of people by surprise. Did you see this particular ending coming? Well, I always knew that this was possible. It's very difficult to be acquitted by a federal jury. The jury is not from Philadelphia. It's from the entire Eastern District of Pennsylvania. They are learning things about Philadelphia as they go that Philadelphians take for granted and um, think are quite normal. Uh, In this case, there was a lot of uh, what we call sausage making. There was a lot of what happens behind the scenes when things are before city council and bills are passing that I, I think, you know, I've reported on. I feel like our listeners would be pretty familiar with everything that happened. But to somebody coming from, you know, Lehighton or Allentown, it might look different. And that's why it is so very hard to be acquitted. That said, I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of, it did startle a lot of us. And as he was leaving the courthouse yesterday, John Doherty, well, he seemed to be taking this somewhat in stride. Listen, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay? We're good. Listen, I have been open to every one of you for all seven weeks and a better part of my life. I am very comfortable. You don't, you don't see me blinking, right? I am very comfortable. This is 25 years of... The, look, all you need to know is the action that was taken at the very end. Come on, guys. Nobody thought that was right. I'll see you guys later. Thank you for everything. Okay, so that was John Doherty. I'm not sure if I would be feeling that loose after I got convicted of seven federal charges, but such is life here. Both Doherty and Heenan went into this trial just projecting a ton of confidence, and it sounds like Doherty still is. Do you think either one of them saw this coming? No, I really think they thought they had this beat. Uh, They thought the government's case was weak. I mean, they seriously thought the judge was going to direct a not guilty verdict. That's how weak they thought the case was. Uh, But as you heard, Doherty is a tough guy. He he is not going to blink now. Pat, did you get any sense of what the reaction was like inside City Hall, for example, from either allies or opponents of either Doherty or Councilman Heenan? 
I did. I called every single council member yesterday. Uh, most of them did not want to talk, um, particularly the allies that you mentioned. There are many of those on city council. John Doherty is a very important political figure in this city. Everyone knows Heenan is a close ally. And plus, he has helped a lot of people on council get things passed, get things introduced. And so his allies are sad. They're shaken. Uh, I will tell you that none of them thought that he was going to be found guilty. None of the people who were willing to talk to me. And it was off the record. Some of them said... I still don't know what he did wrong. I think we need a, a primer on what we're allowed to do and not do because they look at the case, they see things that they themselves have done. Uh, they're not clear about why he was acquitted of some charges and not others. So there, there is a lot of turmoil in city council. Now, uh, the two people that would talk, the council president, Daryl Clark, of course, speaking for the body, we're going to stay focused. Uh, and then the one real outspoken Doherty opponent, someone who has made no secret and, and rather bravely of her conflicts with Doherty is Maria Canonia Sanchez. And here's what she had to say. Philadelphia City Council is one of the highest paid. And we have to build public trust about the work that we're doing, that we're a full-time council as they elect us to be. Doherty is one of the most influential power players in city politics, a guy who just never seemed to fear anyone. And now he appears he's headed down and it turned out to be the biggest fight of his life. And right now he might be out of cards to play. So for Doherty, for those who may not understand the stroke that this guy has, what kind of a position is this for him right now? How unfamiliar is it for him? Well, actually, it's not unfamiliar at all. He's been under investigation by the FBI for, as he would frequently say, 30 years. I don't know if it's really been that long. I, I wasn't here 30 years ago, but at least um, nearly as long as I've been here, uh, the investigate this particular investigation started six years ago. Uh, so his phones were being tapped. Every phone conversation he had was recorded by the FBI. They seized his computers with all his emails on it. Um, he is used to scrutiny, and he will tell you it's because he has made such gains for organized labor that it makes sort of the corporate powers that be in the city uncomfortable, and that's kind of what motivates this. But he is used to it. And not only that, he faces another trial after this. This was supposed to be the easy one. This was the one that the conventional wisdom was he can beat this one. It's a very weak case but they'll get him on the next one, which is uh, a much larger indictment, many more counts. It's misuse of union funds, which potentially was easier to prove. So as he would walk out of court each day, he'd say, you know, this is not just a six week trial for me. This is 25 or 30 years of my life. And so it goes back to what he said at the top. He's been very open and he's not blinking now. Following, at least from the outside, it never felt like there was any sort of like bombshell testimony or some dramatic revelation on those wiretap phone calls. It's just the prosecution got the job done. Now, here's what U.S. Uh, attorney, acting attorney, Jennifer Arbiter Williams said outside of the courthouse yesterday after the convictions came down. Philadelphians deserve more than a system that favors the few who have a person they can call to get things done. All the public knew 
was that Heenan drew a salary from Local 98, not that he was expected to do John Doherty's bidding, a fact which he failed to remember in doing the bidding of his political godfather, John Doherty. Was there maybe a particular turning point in this trial or maybe what was the most successful thing about the prosecution strategy? Because you mentioned he's been getting investigated for a quarter century and this is the one that appears to have gotten him. Or was it simply just a matter of just the cumulative evidence against him that kind of tipped the scales against him and the councilman? Yeah, I think it was the cumulative evidence. Um, I think if either of them had been indicted on any single count, it would have been tough to prove. But when you stack up 18 charges and you use, you know, hours and hours of phone calls about one of them and then hours and hours more of another, I'm sure the jury started to think, well, when does he have time to do anything else? You know, it sounds like the only person he's talking to is John Doherty. That, of course, is not the case. But I, I, I do think that probably that tape recorded evidence was um, what persuaded the jury most. Now, what about the defense? In hindsight, did they appear to misplay anything? There, as you mentioned there, they seem to be treating this as if this were almost a layup, like they were just going to beat this and keep it moving. Was there something that they maybe missed that they could have done better? You know, that's such an interesting question. Um, I guess I have my opinion, um, which I'm always loath to share. But I will say that, you know, as a reporter, what I think is that juries want a counter narrative. They don't want like a, here's this evidence, here's our version of why it's not true. I think they wanted a whole story like the government had that, you know, here's a guy who was investigated for all these years and he did all this good for people and the mean, nasty government has been after him because he's a Robin Hood type figure. You know, I think you tell a story to the jury the way the prosecution does. And now everything I know about law, I learned from Perry Mason reruns. So, <laughs> I, you know, that's probably what heavily influences my opinion on that. But, um, you know, I do, I do think what was missing was the story of why the government would go to all this trouble to get him if there wasn't really something up. I was more getting my law degree from Matlock on this one, but when, <laughs> it, when it, we get to the ne- what's next portion of this conversation, because now we got some other questions since we've got multiple convictions here. First, what's next for Doherty and Heenan? Their sentencing's not till February, but what could they possibly do over the next few months? Well, I believe that they'll can both continue on in their jobs and uh, Doherty will probably try to set up a succession, uh, especially at the Building Trades Council, where there is kind of an heir apparent in the head of the laborers union, Ryan Boyer, who's his second in command at the Building Trades. Heenan, I, I do not expect to resign until sentencing. That state law says he can stay in office until then, and I think he will. Council is going to be doing something really important between now and February, and that is drawing new city council districts. And I think he'll want to be in on that. It will, to some extent, influence who his successor is because, you know, it will have to be someone that lives within the boundaries 
of the district that is drawn, his sixth district. Uh, you know, I think for the time being, nothing radical will change. Might be a little awkward when they go into the office, but <laughs> but I do think that that the real change won't come until sentencing. It's very interesting that he doesn't have to resign until he's sentenced. I know in some places, the second you get convicted, you're done. And in his case, he's got two, three months left to kind of figure out everything. That's in the short term, all of our attention is going to be on Doherty and Heenan. But in the long term, what do you think the outcome of this trial will mean in the context of how politics is done, how the proverbial sausage is made here in the city of Philadelphia? Like what needs to change and would this even possibly spur any sort of change here? Well, certainly there are people who hope it will. I spoke with Pat Christmas, the policy director at the Good Government Group Committee of 70, and he hopes that it will force council to confront some of their rules that have led to this kind of, you know, what the jury decided was a corrupt alliance uh, He's for public financing of campaigns, which is something that there have been hearings on that in city council. It hasn't gone anywhere. He wants to make the Office of the Inspector General permanent and have it apply to the whole city. The OIG is a watchdog of the administrative branch. He'd like it also to apply to the legislative branch. That would have to be a charter change. And kind of the the low-hanging fruit is the policy on outside employment. The fact that Councilmember Heenan only had to disclose his employer, the work address of that employer, and the fact that he was a quote-unquote electrician says enough about how inadequate the current requirements are. Maria Canonia Sanchez, who we talked about earlier, she plans to introduce legislation that would limit outside employment to education uh, and put a cap on earnings. She, by the way, also called for Heenan to resign immediately, going, <laughs> going back to what we were talking about a minute ago. It sounds like at least if nothing else, she's consistent about the messaging that she that she has there. What is even the temperature for the idea of changing that requirement, meaning you just only can maybe cut a paycheck from being an educator as opposed to being in a union or some sort of lobby? Well, I will tell you the one other council member who was willing to talk on tape, Council President Clark, was very cool to the idea. He said, you know, we have a very strong board of ethics with very clear policies. And he thinks that that is sufficient. Heenan's lawyer said during the trial, this was not a federal case, but maybe a board of ethics case. So maybe it is something that could have been worked out at the local level if someone had availed themselves of of that option. One council member speaking off the record said he wants the council president to get council together and have a seminar on what they're allowed to do and not to do, because he says he doesn't know anymore what really is legal. A lot of us learned for the first time what was legal and what was not. We've heard the words lobbying being thrown around a lot by Keel and other members of the union saying that this is lobbying, this is lobbying. But in some places, it's not. And clearly the federal government, at least his jury, did not think that this was lobbying. They thought it was something a lot, a lot deeper than that. One last question for you. How do you feel after covering this? How exhausted are you after having dealt with this? And are there any other takeaways that you've pulled from these last six weeks? It was really interesting to cover. I mean, a lot of court is boring uh, and then it's spiced up with uh, the occasional really 
interesting witness or interesting tape. Um, I think to me, the star witness, the star defense witness was Courtney Voss, who is uh, Heenan's chief of staff and apparently his girlfriend. Neither one of them deny that. Actually, they can. Uh, she confirmed it. And she was very emotional on the stand. She broke down and cried. Um, I thought that made her somewhat sympathetic, but I heard from other people the opposite that, you know, it was, that was, may have been what turned the jury off to Heenan, the, you know, having his girlfriend come up and cry on the stand. It is very interesting how all these sort of things work out. Pat, you've covered a lot of different things in your time in Philadelphia, and this this trial is certainly one that will definitely stand out. What else are you working on before we start to make our way out of here? Well, personal news, I'm working on getting over COVID-19 right now. Oh, my. I'm in quarantine <laughs> um, through the end of the week. I started to come down with symptoms after the jury got the case. Uh, so I got tested and stayed home. I missed the two days of no decision deliberation. And uh, yesterday just caught up with everyone by phone interviewing city council for react. But of course, our own Mike DiNardo and Shara Day Howard covered the actual verdict. We do also want to shout out Mike DiNardo, who was there for the verdict and Shara Day Howard, who picked up Jennifer Arbiter Williams, her response yesterday as well at the end of that trial following the verdict. Wanted to make sure we got that out there too. Pat has definitely, she carried the large amount of the load on this thing, but as is with life, it seems these days, the pandemic always finds a way to, to wander its way into the conversation, but she was still able to get the job done and we're greatly appreciative for that. Justice in the time of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> That's KYW News Radio's City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb checking in with us from quarantine <laughs> as we're putting a bow on this trial of City Councilman Bobby Heenan and Labor Leader John Doherty. Pat, thank you so much for coming and joining us today here on The Rundown. Always a pleasure, Jay. And The Rundown is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by Sabrina boyd oh, 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 oh. oh I'm what? sorry. This just in, breaking news. John Doherty resigned as business manager of Local 98. Wow. <laughs> well, all right. You know what? I am a terrible fortune teller, obviously. <laughs> Don't ever place a bet on my predictions. <laughs> so I guess we can quickly ask about this. So apparently with Doherty now resigning as the head of this union, it looks like the succession plan is going to start moving into motion a little bit sooner than anybody expected. Yes, um, the Local 98 spokesman, Frank Keel, says the executive board reluctantly but unanimously accepted his resignation and elected Local 98 safety director, Mark Lynch, to serve as interim business manager. So it's one more domino that is starting to fall here along the way with the fallout from this trial. Pat, thank you again. Sorry about that. Okay. Please do not apologize for breaking news on this podcast. That's what we certainly appreciate here on The Rundown, which is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. This show is produced by Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KYW News Radio is Tom Rickard. My name is J. Scott Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at J. Scott Smith. That's real J. Scott Smith 
on Instagram and Facebook. You can hear me every afternoon on KYW News Radio, 103.9 FM, 1060 AM, and on the Odyssey app starting at 3 p.m. for Philadelphia's afternoon news. You can also find on the Odyssey app this podcast, The Rundown, which you can follow on Twitter at The Rundown PHL. Again, The Rundown PHL. Hear it for free on the Odyssey app or just about wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and I'm thanking you for checking out this Tuesday edition of The Rundown.